This is Emerging Possibilities, powered by Volvo Group Australia. Here we talk to industry experts about the future of mobility and how it will shape both our lives and the world we live in. Hi, thanks for joining us again for another episode of Emerging Possibilities, powered by Volvo Group Australia. I'm Matt Wood, and I'm also joined by my co-host, Tim Camilleri, Volvo Group Australia's e-mobility manager. So Tim is still sulking after I forgot to introduce him in the last episode, but our guest today on this episode is Heather Bone, Head of Environmental, Social and Governance for Toll Global Express. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Matt. So let's start off by who is Heather and followed by what is ESG because <laughs> at Volvo Group, we do the acronyms. So, Well, as you said, Matt, I'm head of ESG and I think for every business that means something different, but essentially it's the non-financial metrics of a business, the things that you can't necessarily put a, a dollar figure on. So it's, it's environment, it's social governance, it's everything from modern slavery and anti-bribery and corruption all the way through to emissions. But very specifically for Toll Global Express, it's about emissions and how we reduce them down. And I suppose it's a fair question to say, why does that matter? Well, you know, transport and logistics are about 17% of the world's emissions. So it's it's a really big, chunky number. And as we all know, the heavy transport industry is the bulk of that, whether that's in mining or in line haul transport. If we don't start making a difference to those big, clunky, chunky emission figures, we're not going to be able to make a difference. And we've got some some real targets now. Now that we've had a change of government, they're planning on putting in, in fact, I think they might have already put in a 43% emission reduction target by 2030. So we've got a big role to play in that. And I think working together with OEMs like Volvo is going to be critical to how we reduce down those emissions. On that, where do you see the most sort of pressure in that area? Like are are your customers putting a lot of pressure on you to do that or has it been driven just solely by Toll Global Express or like how does that sort of landscape look? Yeah, it's a good question, Matt, because we're actually getting pressure from a whole lot of pinch points. So on the one hand, our customers are demanding it. So whether that's key large customers like a Woolworths or Coles, Officeworks, Ikea, our customers are saying, we want you to lower down your emissions. The other side of that coin, though, is the investors. Institutional investors are saying, you must do this. And if you do it, we will help you lower your cost of capital. So we know that in the financial markets, if we're doing something right about lowering our emissions, we're going to be able to get ever so slightly cheaper money. And and when you're talking about large amounts of money, that ever so bit counts, every bit of that counts. So the pressure is all the way along the supply chain. It's from our OEMs, we know that this is coming. From our customers, we know that they're demanding it, they're asking for it. We know that the institutional investors are saying, you've got to do this. I think the really big challenge is who's going to pay for all of this? You know, it's still really, really expensive to do. It's not like we're going into solar and wind that has a a reasonable payback period. In order for us to lower our emissions, it's really expensive for us to do. So 
What are the emissions targets for Toll Global for Express? For us? Yeah. So we haven't made a heap of public announcements yet, but our plan is, and I know our CEO blurted this out at a, at a uh, forum just last week, so I'm very happy to say we're planning on heading for a 50% emission reduction by 2030. That is going to be really challenging for us to do. And I think, although, again, our CEO we sometimes agree on this, I think we'd actually be able to get a 100% net zero by 2035. I actually think that's achievable. But again, it comes back to whether or not the, the customer is going to be willing to pay for that change. Because when it comes down to it, it's all of that flows through to the customer. It's going to be more expensive for the customer to be using transport and logistics. Are you talking about your direct customer or the end customer, the end consumer of transport? It, it really is both. Yeah. Global Express grew out of Toll Group. So back in about 2015, Toll Group was acquired by Japan Post. And what you see today around global forwarding, global logistics, global express um, was acquired by Japan Post. And then last year, the Global Express business, so that is um, the Australian and New Zealand operations, came back to Australia, which I'm, I think we're all really excited to say. And we're owned by a terrific private equity firm called Allegro Funds. So what you see in Australia and New Zealand now is Global Express. So our customers are generally the parcel people, palletized express, people who have a genuine face to the consumer more so than big mining companies and, and that sort of thing. So our customers are the people that we see every day in the shopping centres and, uh, you know, the, the ones when we come up to your front door and actually do a delivery. So we do a lot of that last mile delivery as well. I think I've they're interesting to hear, Heather, but I think overall I've got a, a question around what drives you in this space? You hear a bit of passion coming through in your voice and, and I think overall, what, you know, what drives you, what's driven you this job, what, how have you got here as well? Like, what's the Heather story? <laughs> uh, well, I'm I'm an ESG tragic is probably the wrong way to put it. I'm a, I'm a sustainability tragic. I'm lucky enough that I have a CEO and a board who are incredibly supportive of making this difference as well. So if you think back 20, 25 years ago, um, when I first started working in sustainability and lowering emissions and, and all of those sorts of wonderful things, what we have now is a very different world. So I'd say for the first 20 out of those 25 years, it was like Groundhog Day. You know, mm. I was getting up and saying the same things and trying to pummel people into submission and mm. please do what we're asking you to do. But the world has really changed over mm. the last few years that all of a sudden ESG is is critical, it's important, and it's about the way you do business. It's when you look at all of the social components, it's around our community engagement, our social license to operate, those things that our mining fraternity have been doing really well for the last 20 or 30 years. Transport and logistic, eh, not so well. Mm. On the governance front, it is a sensible way to do business. On the environmental front, yeah, all of a sudden the world wants to know about what are we actually doing about real emission reduction? And I think that's the critical change as well, that it's less about, it's not so much about greenwashing anymore. It's not about planting trees to offset carbon. It's about actual 
emission reductions. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm in my happy place, Tim. This is where I want to be for the rest of my life. Hey, I'm there with you. I'm there <laughs> with you. I think for me overall, we've spoken about a little bit in the past and cut past episodes, but having something to play with the products we have is a, a nice change for me about talking about the future and change and you know, the change and the change in transport possibilities. Whereas is now we're you know we're doing it, we're executing on it. It's you know, real, and that, right? And that normalization of about electric vehicles and sustainability and environment and all the rest of it, um, it's really come through societally rather than just those few people in the corner trying to talk about it. I think that's the most exciting part from my point of view as well is that this is a normal conversation now. It is. And I had the pleasure of presenting at the Allegro Funds AGM last week. And even in that conversation, I'm still explaining to people what scope one, scope two, scope three emissions are. But the change is that people are actually asking what and scope wanting one to listen. and wanting and to wanting, listen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. They want to know, okay, what does that actually mean? Mm. And how can I make a difference? Mm. You know, what are the things that I can do in my real world to make that difference? So, yeah, a change is coming. Uh, would you say that was just the first, like, you know, what? Do you think it's been the last two years, three years, or like this year in really particular, it's still growing? Or It's definitely still growing. Yeah. And I would say the real change has been over the last 18 months to two years. I think having a, a change of government in Australia is going to challenge the way that we think and they're going to drive some different behaviours. But the real change for me, I think, has been over the last 18 months or so where you, you're starting to get asked questions that... People feel, I think they're having more courage to ask the questions around, okay, what, is, what does that actually mean? Because hmm. it does take courage to ask a question that you genuinely have no idea what the answer to. It's funny though, listening to both of you speak, and especially like we know we're in a really tight labor market now, right? So I quite often say to people when, if I'm interviewing them or something like, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning, right? So just like a job doesn't really work, does it? It's like, or, <laughs> no. and people, like, yeah, everyone wants money, but I, I'm wondering whether we've also hit a, a point in time where people are looking for, for meaning in their labour as well. So, like, you know, as you were talking about, like, how excited you are to be working in this space, you're excited that somebody's, like, actually asking you about what you do. I think, um, I don't know, I feel like there's a little bit of a shift even in just how we work. You're spot on, Matt, because, and you also touched upon something about the labour market, because ESG is not just about emissions. It is a broader, I guess, a broader church of a whole lot of different topics. And another one that we're really passionate about is diversity and inclusion. You know, my CEO is is constantly talking about the way that we do business and how we would love to see not only just more women or more Indigenous people, but transport is a very multicultural industry. You know, when you look at our operators, we have the, the most amazingly eclectic, multicultural group of people who want to work there. And, and I, th I think that's a social change as well that's coming through. We've got other things that we, you know, we're really passionate about, waste and recycling and how do we drive some of that change. And that can only occur hand in hand with our customers and hand in hand with our OEMs. You know, we, we need to be able to figure out how do we change consumer behaviour to encourage the minimisation of waste? How do we change behaviour to encourage 
energy efficiency as much as emission reduction because there's not going to be one magic silver bullet for this. We're going to have to do a whole lot of different things to get there. But for the end user, the customer, it has to be a frictionless kind of experience, right? Like, so, so no one's, no one's going to sign up for it to be difficult. Absolutely. You've got to make it easy. You know, e- even every night of the week, I look in my rubbish and think, okay, so why is that over there? And what idiot put that there? And, and then you continue to have these conversations internally and beat your head against the wall and go, <laughs> can you just, you understand this can be 100% recycled, right? So let's put it over there. So you're um, saying you have difficult stakeholders both at work and at home sometimes? <laughs> I, have, I have some challenging stakeholders at challenging. home as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, that's a good way to put it. You know, my, um, I remember when my, my stepdaughter started at university and she's a, a early education and um, primary school teacher. She's incredibly talented. And one of the first subjects that she came home and thumped this enormous book down on the kitchen table. And it was about, it was a sustainability manual with really tiny writing and lots of pages. It was like, you know, a Bible coming down. She said, oh, is this what you do? And I said, yes, yes, that's what I do. <laughs> and even having that challenging conversation, because she was, she was talking to her lecturers about, oh, well, I need to profile what if I catch a train instead of driving my car and what are my emission savings going to be on that? So, I, yeah, I, I have some challenging stakeholders, but they're, they're pretty- Well engaged. They're well, well engaged. They're well engaged yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. And I think for ESG, that's where the changes are really coming from. Mm. So when I talk to our operational crew, it tends to be that their children are coming to them and asking these questions or their grandchildren are coming and asking these questions and they then come to me and say, I don't know what they're actually asking. What, what are they talking about? So I think that change is being driven exponentially through our education system as well, which is great. Yeah, actually, um, one of my stepsons um, is just won't get a license, rides his bicycle to work. Oh, fantastic! Add, and he just gets out of bed every morning and just um, and we've sp- spoken to him. Wouldn't it be easier if you if you drive a car? He goes, I don't want to. That is, it's just fantastic to hear. Because um, uh, we were talking about that the train's going to run whether I'm on it or not. Mm. I think was the response, which I think is quite yeah. quite a nice one, right? Yeah, and having, I think COVID has changed a lot of behaviours as well. You know, when you think about the impact on transport, we've now got an industry that is so essentially immersed in the community and it's always been that way. But if we could talk to, say say your son buys something online, if you think about the waste of him having it delivered, let alone him having it delivered with a next day delivery, if I could discourage the consumer from ticking that box of next day delivery, if they understood the impact on their emissions and they understood the impact on their emissions, for example, if they send something back, you're immediately doubling your emissions by returning something, you know, through some sort of transport network. So I admire your son for doing that because it might be that he's the person who starts thinking in that different way as well. Yeah. In a Brisbane summer after a downpour, he's uh, certainly a lot of fun to uh, (laughs) chat to about these things. (laughs) But um, but I think that's interesting too. What you're talking about, like uh, that consumer behaviour, because like again, everything about how we've developed as a society has been about making it easier, quicker, 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 faster, you know, faster. faster. 
who uses a card anymore when you've you can use your phone or your watch or whatever so you know and to try and roll that back i mean that's a massive kind of it's, task it's isn't it a, it's a challenging task i think we're going to reach a point in time or at least i hope we reach a point in time where our customers so you know, whether it's our, our office works or ikea or woolworths maybe when people are doing their online order they say or they ask the question, are you prepared more or are you prepared to pay more for a lower emission delivery? And I'm not saying that in the way like a carbon offset, not like an airline carbon offset, because I think you know less than 1% of the population actually ticks that box for a carbon offset. I'd like to see the change of, are you prepared to pay a little bit more in order to have it delivered in some sort of green way, whether that's through electric vehicles or hydrogen vehicles or renewable diesel or all of these different methods. Because I I struggle to see how the consumer, in most instances, absolutely needs that mobile phone delivered the next day or, you know, that makeup or that toy, whatever is. I sort of struggle to see that it's usually necessary, absolutely for medical devices and, you know, those sorts of things. But a lot of instances I can't see why it needs to be delivered the next day. I think you hit the nail on the head before when you said if people understood what that next day delivery means. And, you know, a lot of this is about information. You know, a lot of, you know, regardless of it's the definition of ESG or what the impact is, it's about getting that information out to people for them to make informed decisions themselves. You know, do you need your phone? You know, if you've waited a year for the new version of whatever the phone is, do you need it? on the Saturday or can you have it on the Monday? Will you pay the extra whatever to get it you know, delivered green? But it's about giving people the information on what the impacts are about choosing next day, about choosing not green and all the rest of it. I think that's the biggest one for me is is making sure people are informed about their decisions yeah. and what the actual impact is. You know, at the moment, all we get is time and cost. That's it really on a lot of things. There's no other real measure yeah. on what the flow on effect is of making those decisions. Yeah. Mm. And I think, Tim, I, I know you're itching to talk about electric vehicles. So oh, of course. I, I, <laughs> I'm a nerd when it comes to so, myself, so of course. So, let's, let's. <laughs> so <laughs> this has been an exercise. We were just talking about delayed gratification, right? So it's, it's, it's kind of like a follow-on from that. Yeah. <laughs> let's give Tim his EV discussion. So, you know, EVs. <laughs> okay, so if you, look at our, if you look at our transport fleet, I'll give you, you know, brief rundown of Global Express. We have about six and a half thousand trucks of a huge variety from, you know, small, light, medium ridges right up to heavy haul. We've got the two ships that go back and forth between the mainland and Tasmania. We've got about 1,500 forklifts. We've got 41 planes. We've got all of that again in subcontractors because we subcontract out a lot of these things and we are the subcontractor for a lot of other entities as well. So if you look at our scope one, our scope two, our scope three emissions profile, it's it's enormous. And there is, again, no magic silver bullet for that. There is going to be a point in time where electric vehicles make sense in a particular application. I like that you're nodding. Thanks, Tim. Well, no, I'm <laughs> agreeing. I'm, I'm sort of agreeing on this. There will be, Tim. Yeah, yeah there will yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, nodding, yeah. Tim. You're yeah, nodding, yeah. Tim. Yeah, so EVs are going to have a, a role to play. We're going to have hydrogen having a role to play at the really heavy end of the market. But I can't see that actually happening, you know, I think maybe by the end of this decade, we will start getting heavy haulage 
you know, OEM in, solution. In, in large numbers. In large numbers, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And then in the middle, we've got, okay, so there's going to be some gas. There might be biogas. There might be biomethane. There's absolutely going to be biodiesel, renewable diesel. We are still going to need those liquid sources of fuel from a biodrived you know, basis. We're going to need sustainable aviation fuel. When you look at our solution, it is going to be very broad. And I've recently been undertaking a you know an electric vehicle project as you know looking at how do we put EVs into a particular part of our solution and it's just not as easy as you would expect and it's nowhere near as easy as when the politicians say well you just buy a truck you buy an EV you it, plug it in and you and drive plug it, it in and off you go if you look at where I can put EVs, they have to be in particular postcodes, so a particular distance from our depot, so that they are only driving a certain distance each day. When they get back there, though, they have to be plugged into whether it's fast or slow charges, huge cost. We have to change the layout of the depots. We've got to have trucks parked up that we wouldn't necessarily have them parked up and plugged in. But then we have to make sure that we're using energy at the lowest point in time of that day. There's no point plugging the, the truck in if it's going to be at peak load time, right? High cost. Higher cost. Not green. Exactly. Mm. So you know, that means that we are limited in the, the productivity of that vehicle to between about 5 o'clock in the morning and about 8 o'clock at night because after 8 o'clock, 8.30, say, is mm. about the, that's the end of the peak time when you want to start charging them. So putting an EV in, I was, I was at a, um, a ministerial lunch a few weeks ago and, and the minister said, well, it's, you know, EV trucks, they're just like EV buses, aren't they? And everyone in the room looked at him and went, no, no, buses do a precise route every, every day. day, precise timing every day. They're back in the depot. Every day. Yeah, in a certain, or hopefully in a certain order. Hopefully know. in a certain yeah, yeah. order. Trucks, on the other hand, a little bit sporadic, a little yeah. different. And, and unpredictable. Yeah. And then yeah. I was thinking about range anxiety on the weekend. Mm. And you know, so you've got the cost of the EVs being prohibitive. You know, they, they are more than double the cost of an ICE vehicle. You've got um, the energy management that you have to do. You have to change your driver's behavior. For us, we actually have to change all of our conveyor systems as well mm. inside those parcel deliveries. And, and that's a huge cost to the business. And then you have your driver's range anxiety. And that anxiety is very real. I mm -hmm. hand up, I tell you, on the weekend, I drove back from the Sunshine Coast to the Gold Coast and I looked down and my odometer said I had 260 kilometres to go and being the cheapskate that I am, I didn't want to fill up in the Sunshine Coast because it was too expensive. I wanted to get closer to home. So 260 k's there and on my app, my map app, it said I've got 180 kilometres to go. And I tell you what, I watched that so closely <laughs> all the way home. By the time I pulled into the service station, my heart was racing. <laughs> I was like, am I actually going to be able to get here or is my husband just going to laugh at me when he finds out I'm stuck on the side of the highway? Because you're a little bit cheap. Because <laughs> I was too cheap to get it up the coast. But it also made me think, wow, if you're in an EV mm. and you pull over, then what? Yeah. Uh, the, solution, a, the solution's coming and all the rest of it, but I think overall <laughs> range anxiety, the 
<laughs> the best part about range anxiety is, you know, trying to live with it and having those situations like that. And I know I'm getting closer and closer to zero as I keep on driving further and further. Yeah, yeah. Um, even in our demo truck, having, what was it? 45 kilometers to do a 42 kilometer <laughs> you drive. You the windows down, the I, air conditioning turned yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was sweating in the, in the cab. the radio station so it uses <laughs> yeah. less. Yeah. I mean, I get range, range anxiety over my phone. So like, you oh, know, really? yeah, like I'm one of these people, I start to get twitchy if I'm at like 40% on my phone. So, um, yeah. So Rage anxiety is real. Yeah, it's real. It's, it's it's real. real. And I think, and, you know, but you know, for us, the other thing as well is it's about in, again, I'll say the word information, you know, as much as you can break down what it is, give people those real life experience around it, combat them with simulations or planning and all the rest Absolutely. of it. And then it's interesting to hear, you know, you talked about the processes to putting these vehicles in service and there's a lot of time, effort and you know, probably money as well associated with it all, but it's not quite set and forget. But once you've done it once, you know, you're on your way. A charger is a charger. It'll last for however long and you can easily replace it with a new one and you set up and you've got your practices in place. I think that's the hard part about any change is the first is the first hurdle. It's, but it's getting through that first yeah. six to twelve months, I yep. think, of driver behavior, mechanical behavior, understanding mm-hmm what happens if you're stuck on the side of the road, but monitoring something that they wouldn't traditionally monitor. So Mm. there is a huge piece of education and an awareness around the whole business that's Mm. going to have to change. And and I I think making sure that we work together hand in hand with the OEMs to have that education process is going to be really critical. Oh, I think partnerships are key for all of it, whether it's the OEMs with the with the vehicle or the charging points and all the rest of it, making sure that that, that information and that that sharing of information is is throughout the whole business to ensure people are educated enough to make a decision and understand what's happening with them. And because it is slightly different, but once they're used to it, once it's up and running, once you've refined it, once we've understood more about the human behavior when it comes to these kind of things, we'll get a lot better at it and it should be a lot easier. I think there's no, and I, you know, I probably sound like I'm downplaying the whole thing. It's going to be, you know, daisies and flowers in two years' time. Uh, just but- to say, like, you could talk it up a little bit, Tim. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Feel free, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. Now's your yeah. time. Yeah. I don't know. It could be your job. Yeah, it, could be, it <laughs> might be my job to talk it up a little bit, maybe. But um, there, it is no small feat. Like, you are essentially, you know, real, as you said, reorganization your operations, your business. And if you want to summarize it, you're building a fuel station that not many people have built before in your grounds. Absolutely. You know, you don't have to rely on a Bowser outside on the road. You have a Bowser sitting now in the same square footage you had before to do your operations. So it's no mean feat to do so, but again, it enables you to make a transition to learn and and have a little bit more ownership over you know what your vehicles are doing and and, and, and know, running them. You just touched upon it. You know, I've been talking to our property team about okay, so for future greenfield sites and mm. for future modifications to brownfield sites, what needs to happen in order for us to have this variety of fuels? Because at a point in time, we're going to need charging infrastructure. And probably a lot of it in different ones. And, exactly. Yeah. That, that's going to be appropriate for the vehicles and for the time of day that we can draw down mm. on the energy. Mm-hmm. We're going to need hydrogen tanks in the same way that we need diesel tanks now. So so the actual footprint for for infrastructure and that change is going to be quite a lot to work through. Yep. Also the safety 
on site, you know, so we need to change our traffic management plans. Only recently we were having a look at some of the turning circles and how we can, because you're going to set up your charging stations with bollards and, and you know, bunding around them um, for diesel and that sort of thing. But if you imagine the, you know, the trucks pulling in and then turning out, we're going to be relying on our our drivers to make sure that they don't rip out some of that charging infrastructure as they go past if the turning circle is too tight. So, there's all of those things that you have to think through at, yeah. at a property scale, at an operational scale, and the changes for those. As you say, though, Tim, I think once you've learnt it once, you, you're hopefully not going to make that mistake. Well, ho- hopefully is the key <laughs> word there, I think. You know, putting the effort, at the, you know, the hard at effort the, at the start, exactly. and then I'll just make it easier. You talk about, you know, inputting into your greenfield sites and consideration for your brownfield sites. And yeah, hopefully those decisions you're making now are going to make your life easier in the future. Absolutely. But that's part of it. You know, that's part of any kind of change, I think, is 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 putting in the effort up front and getting it right and refining as much as you can and continuing to refine to, to get a, an ever-evolving better outcome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I suppose like is on a zero emissions sort of roadmap, what's the low-hanging fruit? So like, I mean... You could say it's easier to be seen to be doing stuff that people see, but obviously so much of the supply chains, you know, people have got no idea, right? Absolutely. Like, you know, the, the scope of it, the scale of it and all that sort of stuff. So where's the low-hanging fruit on that journey to kick it off, if you like, you know? So I think traditionally transport in Australia has been a bit of a laggard even when it comes to having Euro 5 and Euro 6 you know, heavy fleet. So that's the most obvious low-hanging fruit, making sure that you are purchasing vehicles to start off with, which are the epitome of, of what you need to be buying. You need to be working with your drivers around fuel-efficient behaviour and making sure that you, you touched upon it before, Matt, you know, do you really need your air conditioning or your heater running the whole time while you're running in and out of a shopping centre? Because that's chewing up fuel as well. So I think changing driver behaviour, having low rolling resistant tyres, making sure that you're, you're driving in the best way, you're optimising your trailer, you're optimising your routes. You know, the, the, the heat and hills in Australia does mean that we have very different applications to around the rest of the world. So, you know, you've got an efficiency gain on on one hand. There's also the ability to change over now to biodiesel blends and renewable diesel blends, but we struggle to buy it. All of our product goes to Europe and, and California in particular because of the low carbon fuel standard there. So, if we could purchase our Australian-made biodiesel and renewable diesel now, I would be doing it right now. And I know that there's a there's a great piece of work that the clean energy regulator is doing and hopefully the minister will approve come February next year, which means that if you are using electric vehicles, renewable diesel, hydrogen and SAF, so sustainable aviation fuel, you can start accumulating ACUs, carbon credit units for that. And I think that that will fundamentally change the dynamics of the industry in Australia. We will have a, a a different demand profile for those products. So that's the the next step to us is how do we change over our liquid fuel types without changing out our engines? We all know that our heavy trucks are, you know, they're, they're not something that you can just throw random fuel. It's not like you can put your chip fat in there if it hasn't been With refined. With chips in it. With chips know, in yeah, it. Yeah. So fuel efficiency then moving on to more low emission fuel types would be the next logical step. And you're still going to need that step 
for the applications where you can't use an EV and you can't use hydrogen. There is still going to be demand for a liquid fuel source until EVs and hydrogen come together in the middle. And I think that's still many, many years away before that happens. I would say, you know, maybe 2035 by the time we've got all of those applications meeting in the middle. And then you're still going to have old trucks in the fleet. You're still going to have, you know, V8 drivers who want their high octane fuels. So I think there's still going to be a demand for that. We've got to think about different ways to fill that gap. Hearing you talk about it like that way is, you know, you're, Matt said you're low-hanging fruit and you said, well, we've got to, you know, from what I understood, we've got to approach it from every angle and understand what could be considered non-low-hanging fruit still needs to be investigated to understand what's possible when and then mapping it against, you know, obviously your roadmap. But is there, from my mind, is there anything that you found easier than you thought? Like was getting SAF, you know, easier than you had anticipated? Obviously, biodiesel isn't as easy as you can do. Like, is that, what's been... It should be said I have a vested interest in this answer because he got to geek out about EVs, I geek out about aviation. So. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. well, yeah. we can talk about that. The, um, <laughs> it's sort of, I go back to my earlier comment about Groundhog Day. Some of these things I feel like we've been talking about in the industry for decades, you know, since 2002, 2004, and they don't seem to have got any easier. They seem to have got easier overseas instead of in Australia. So you can far more readily buy SAF internationally because there are carbon mechanisms that are driving those markets, particularly under the Renewable Energy Directive for the EU and the Low Carbon Fuel Standard for for California, as I mentioned. So I know there was an announcement, I think just last week, that Qantas is planning on investing $200 million in actual SAF production in Australia. And it's not It's not that we can't do it now, but there hasn't been those carbon levers to pull to drive the investment in Australia. So I know there's a huge number of Japanese colleagues who are looking at hydrogen investment in Australia. We've got, no, we've already had some terrific announcements about hydrogen. But hydrogen for me, as I I mentioned, I think it's still some years away. And I think it's still a really awkward balance between politicians wanting to make big announcements about hydrogen versus what is real on the ground. And I'll give you an example of um, an entity that approached me uh, several months ago because they they wanted our support for a hydrogen refueling station. But where they wanted to put it is not where the trucks go. They wanted to have them routing through a completely different place where the B-doubles wouldn't be able to turn. It was off the Hume Highway, so it, you know, it wasn't near the Takata Exchange or anything like that. It just didn't make sense, but it made sense for them to build make it there, there yeah. because they could get land for the solar and plenty of water, so they could make the hydrogen there. And I said, that's great, but the economics don't stack up when I need it over there. And then the economics for them don't make much sense for them to have to transport to it, it to where there. you want it. Yeah. yeah. And that yeah. for me is, you know, the the yet unknowns when it comes to hydrogen is the whole supply chain of it from creation through to storage, through to movement, through to putting it into the vehicles as well. Like it, it will do a really good job, but there's a lot more unknowns overall for how it'll be executed and become operationally sound than say the electrics or you know your chip diesel so you know overall there's a lot of work to be done for it it will be a great outcome once it's worked out but overall we have goes back to the other you know your point you're saying before is let's look into 
other what, things what, as well. What we what, can what, do now. What's controllable? What, you know, SAF, for example, can we make it in Australia? Should we make it in Australia? Is enough demand? EVs, where do they fit? How far can they go? You know, and how do we make this? I don't think overall it should be a one big splash in, in an area, but tiny bits of progress throughout till we get the whole picture I, coming I up and running. It. But mm. spot on, Tim, there's not going to be a single solution. No. There's going to need to be lots of different solutions that are applicable for mm. all of these transport types. You yeah. know, SAF, I think I started talking, you know, with the airlines back in the mid-2000s. You know, they've been pushing for SAF for that long, such a long time, and yet it's still not economically palatable in Australia. But it'll come. I've got no doubt all of these mm. things will oh. come. It's just what's the time frame? When and how? Yeah. When and how is a lot of the questions for me. You know, I think with EVs, are probably, you know, you went through converting a depot into more electric vehicles and there's hurdles and things to consider and all the rest of it. But overall, for the rest of it, hydrogen, SAF, biodiesels, it's it's the when and how. Yeah. And how does it look? And it will. I, I don't think it's an if. No, I don't think any of it's an if. Oh, absolutely. It's a when. It's a when. And that's, the, that's, you know, but moderating those expectations, I guess, as well in one part. Some people pushing for it sooner rather than later when it's not probably got the whole supply chain or operational readiness for it to happen, whether it's the vehicle, the infrastructure, the storage of transport. Those are the questions that still need to be worked out. Yeah. And again, who's going to be paying for it? And that's the big one as well. It, you know, what, what part of the supply chain is paying for it? Are we all contributing a little bit or is it? get dumped on the end consumer of transport or, you know, how does it all flow through? Because, yeah, if you start buying, I think, what was your example? Phone and makeup. And instead of, you know, $3, $5, $7 for for transport, it's $52 for transport. I don't think it's going to be a a realistic future. (laughs) But it's probably the future that's coming, right? That we got the economic change that we're having at the moment. We've got supply chain issues that feel like they're never ending at the yeah. moment, right? You know, think of AdBlue shortages last year and then floods and railway lines going down. We're actually, we're still just in time mentality rather mm. than trying to prepare for what is going to be coming in the mm-hmm. future. And I think that that is definitely going to have a higher cost to someone. And whether, as you say, is it the end consumer or do we all have to bear some of that cost along the way? I suspect it'll probably be a bit of both. Or are there alternatives? Like you, you, start, you started with the conversation with alter- like it doesn't have to be just in time. It has other, you know, it can be on more sustainable, slower, whatever it is, ways around reducing cost or emissions or whatever it is. I think, you know, opening up those those avenues for transport as well, having other considerations rather than going the refinement. We've always gone bigger, faster, all the rest of it, whereas now we've probably got a plethora of options. We can start to say, well, let's investigate some of those other options rather than being either high cost or high emissions for the now factor. There you go. Thank you very much for uh, your welcome. time today, Heather. It's been a really interesting chat from my end. So, and I reckon we'll have to get you on a future episode when we've got more to talk about, eh? Anytime. Yeah, we've got some pretty exciting things happening in the next few months. So I will look forward to making those announcements. Oh, <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Thank you for listening to Emerging Possibilities. Send your comments, suggestions and questions to emerging.possibilities at volvo.com. And of course, remember to rate and review this show.